For the 65th time, we're back to talk about all the exciting news in the world of independent league baseball, so you'll want to tune in for the rest of this show here on the Indie Ball Report Podcast. We're back again this week, here to bring you all the exciting news in the world of Independent League Baseball, and we also have another interview this week here on the Indie Ball Report podcast. Hello and welcome again. Hello. <laughs> I was waiting for you to, time, to chime in there. Yeah, you know, I, was, uh, I gave a dramatic pause, you know, I gotta uh, make my return be dramatic. Oh, well, that's gonna be fun when I remove the pause then. It's just gonna be weird. <laughs> oh, terrible. <laughs> I may just remove the segment. Who knows? Who knows? Yeah. Any case, though, we are back. We do have an interview, and it is with the United Shore Professional Baseball, <clears throat> the United Shore Professional Baseball League. Uh, we are talking with their director of baseball operations this week, Justin Orenduff, and we talk about a whole bunch of things in that interview. And you'll hear that in just a few moments, but there are other things we have to talk about. Uh, some Somerset news slash technically Atlantic League news. Uh, it wasn't in the prep package I sent, but that's because it just came out today with the whole uh, Long Island's trying to get civic leaders to help them be able to open for mid-July. So there's right. that. Then just some MILB releases. There's some uh, New York Boulder news. And then there's also yep. some... Uh, American Association news and the announcement of our next interview too at the end of the show. But that all comes in due time. First, we have this interview that we have uh, for this week. And that is with, like I said, Justin Orenduff, the Director of Baseball Operations for the USPBL. Preface that now, as we do for all these interviews. Uh, personally, I thought he, he knew a lot. It was a lot different from what I was expecting of the interview. I was expecting to more or less talk a lot about the on-the-field aspect of things, because when you hear director of baseball ops, you're like, oh, probably more pertaining to on-the-field stuff as opposed to off-the-field. But right. when we started getting into the whole conversation and we started talking about it, I liked the direction it took. The whole history behind the league's very interesting. Their model is extremely interesting to me, and more so... Where, when I said, where do you see the league in five years? The answer to that question was something that I think is going to generate a lot of discussion when we get on the other side of this interview. Definitely. No, I mean, I agree. I think this was a very interesting interview. I think it's not one of those leagues that we really spend too much time on. Um, obviously, for, there's obviously many reasons for that. But I, I do think that it's, it's a very interesting thing, especially in this point that we're in with not a lot of baseball. You know, he talked about trying to be able to bring in this type of an experience that we that, you know, trying to have that experience of America's pastime. Uh, being kind of, you know, being able to have your hot dog and go to a live baseball game and, uh, you know, being able to do this. And he's talking about, you know, kind of the culture in Michigan that might make that a little bit more accessible. So I think this is a really interesting kind of case study almost for this COVID period we're in. And I thought he gave some really great answers uh, to your questions and shed the light on what is going on within the league. Like you said, the history of the league a little bit for those who aren't necessarily sure about it. And then, of course, you know, how they're going to deal with this COVID situation, which seems to be, you know, putting themselves really out there on the forefront a little bit. Oh, absolutely. I thought that was extremely interesting to hear from them about 
the whole Americana aspect was something that was interesting to hear. And, yeah. and like I said, the, the part of it that really has me intrigued, and I'm going to gush about in just a second, is the whole model and their, how they approach things. And I think that goes back a lot to the, the founder of the league, uh, Andy Appleby. Before I go on too much of a rant and give away too much of the interview, we might as well just jump right to that. Uh, here is our interview with the director of baseball operations for the United Shore Professional Baseball League, Justin Orinduff. All right, we're back again, and this week we finally have another guest interview, and he is a good guest to have. He is the director of baseball operations for the United Shore Professional Baseball League. I welcome now to the program Justin Orinduff. How's it going today? It's going really well. I really appreciate you guys having me. And we appreciate you taking the time to come on and talk to us about the United Shore League. And obviously there's a lot of talk about, or at least we spent a lot of time talking about how you guys plan to reopen. And we'll obviously get to that in just a little bit here. But I think first it's important to begin by uh, giving you an opportunity to kind of explain what the United Shore League is. Because on this program we do talk an awful lot about, you know, your American associations, your Atlantic Leagues, your Frontier Leagues. And we do spend time on the United Shore League, but I think a lot of our listeners may not know exactly what it is. The USPBL is really rooted in, we kind of consider ourselves a development league kind of for Major League Baseball. And our approach really originated, you know, with our owner, Andy Appleby, in his time that he spent as an owner of a Premier League soccer team. And kind of that, that finishing school branded concept they had and essentially like their minor leagues, right? Where you could be 14 and you're kind of working your way up to play for the, the big premier league team. So he also was an owner of the Fort Wayne team as a Padres, I think low A affiliate. And so he kind of could see a little bit of both sides in kind of terms of big experience. So as he kind of. I think sold the Premier League team and came back to, to Michigan. It was trying to figure out really his next step. He, he kind of built all his his ideas into the USPBL. And that was from sales and marketing and sponsorships and the layout of the ballpark and the overall fan experience. But, you know, rooted in this was this finishing school concept. And we started in 2016. And I actually was there in the beginning not as essentially the director of baseball operations, but as the uh, the throwing coordinator in, in 16. And then, you know, after the first year, Brian Berryman, who was originally in my role, he stepped away. And then that's where I kind of resumed the role. So what we've done, and I think where it's important to for everyone listening, is is really one of the primary ways that we're different is really in our structure. And our structure is different to where, we play primarily three games per week. Some weeks there's four. Um, but, you know, the limit in games provides the opportunity for designated days during the week to just be skill development days. You know, because it's really hard to ask a player at three o'clock, you know, right before stretch or BP to start to make an adjustment when he's got to go out and perform in a game. You know, it's just a really yeah. hard sell. So what we do is we know that we have time to train, to develop the skills. And it all really starts with when a player enters our league, we do a very thorough assessment, building, base running, hitting, pitching. And we start to give them, just like in all of today's game, the data points, which is, hey, here's the average USPBL player. 
here's the average USPBL player that's been signed. Here's the average minor league player. And here's the average major league player. So they can start to see a little bit of a blueprint just in terms of sheer data. If Are they checking the boxes of what type of player they need to be? And if they hope to get signed out of our league, at least they can know objectively some of the areas where they probably have to improve the game. So the, the structure helps us do that. And then over the course of the last three years, we've really kind of, I say, cut the fat of like what kind of really works in these situations and what doesn't. And the training and the skill development is one aspect. And then you have the, the markability of the player, right? So for us, and what I've done is I've taken our in-game data, which we get from FlightScope, which is very similar to TrackMan. And we take that game data, we pull it into our own code, we write out our own scripts, we automatically populate our own reports. Those reports with video and some, some additional analysis are then sent to the major league organizations. And sometimes major league clubs will be like, hey, look, Justin, just send us the raw data file. We'll do our own analytics on it. And others like, okay, Justin, we really appreciate it. Of these three players, which one would you recommend? And then that's where we kind of get into the conversations of selling our players, you know, to major league organizations. So since it started, you know, we've, we've been able to sell 37 players to MLB clubs, provide that opportunity. And obviously last year with Randy Dobnak going all the way up to the big leagues, pitching for the twins, that was really like the pinnacle of like our goal. And we never thought it would happen in, in four years, you know, and yeah. it happened much faster. So we're very proud of that. We don't want Randy Dominic to be our only major leaguer, you know, so yeah. we, uh, we want to keep moving forward. We want to continue to expand our development process, utilize technology and data, but also have our players understand, you know, here's the expectation is when you come into our league. And that's a, just a very interesting take because I know looking across multiple other kind of independent leagues, they also have that same kind of goal of developing players and mm -hmm. moving them on to affiliate organizations. And I've noticed, especially when we talked with uh, the high point player procurement head, uh, Billy Horn, they yeah. said, we're not really that focused on analytics. We more or less care about what you can do on the field because for us, it's about winning games. Right. And to see you guys take a much different approach and have this, no, we're very data centric, a very scientific way of looking at it. It's very kind of interesting, a stark comparison between the two leagues. Yeah, and I think, too, I mean, don't get me wrong. I think when the lights come on and, you know, the ball's in play, we, we want to be competitive. We want to have fun, right? But here's the challenge. If we ask a player to, to be able to drive an inside fastball better because he has a weakness, well, we got to let him understand how to do it, start to do it, try to do it in games, and if he fails, okay, right? Yeah. But as long as we know that he's getting to the point where that's becoming better, then we'll allow time for it to get better. And we don't mind if he goes out there and goes 0 for 4 and strikes out three times and has a weak ground ball. You know, because yeah. our, our competitive play, like we have enough solid performers on the field at any one time where you're going to see a good crisp game. But those guys who you know, need time to develop, like, you know, we're going to give those guys time. And a lot of the stuff happens on the on the, the backfields and the sim games and in the cages or in the training room, whatever it may be. Right. Yeah. But 
That's the main difference. But the key is, and this hasn't come with like, its own unique set of challenges, is but from my voice to our, our managers, to our development staff, it has to be clear communication, right? Yeah. It's expectations. Here's what we want to see from you. And it has to kind of be consistently communicated all the way down the line. Yeah, and communication is always key in in every organization, baseball-related right. or not. I mean, if you have poor communication skills, then the message is going to get lost and things are going to go wrong. So that's very important. And the more you describe the, the league to me, it almost reminds me like youth academies. I know you mm-hmm. had mentioned earlier that's based off of that uh, kind of soccer feel of it where there is that kind of youth academy thing. And it's ve- it's a very intriguing process to me to see this much work going into a league that's, you know, it's typically regarded as an independent league and there's a different right. view to it by the general public. Now, granted, more often than not, that's not exactly a fair way of looking at it. So to see the kind of resources being put into it and clearly you're getting immediate results from it, to have one player go to Major League Baseball less than five years after the league's founding is incredible in and of itself, but then to be averaging what roughly around ten players a year to get signed into affiliated baseball too is nothing to turn your nose at either. Yeah, and look, I mean, a lot of it is some kids, and we've had our, our fair share of players that have been here for two weeks, and you know, a lot of the stuff that they did at the amateur level in college, you know, has helped them, and they already had some some exposure there, right? But for the guys that come in, what we've realized is there's a large number of players who are kind of right on this line and to get them over the line, they, they need four, six, eight, 12 weeks in a, in a league like USPBL to kind of get them over there. Because the way that a lot of front offices are viewing the report of a player is, well, well send me over the data. You can provide some synopsis of the, who the guy is. And we can then go and compare his data to our data in our minor leagues and say, well, this is pretty comparable player. Or we, we actually don't have a left fielder that actually meets this criteria. So this is a pretty good sign for us. You know, I think that's kind of where we've been able to get, you know, more players signed per year just because we're relevant. You know, it's a weekly report that these guys are getting. So they just have more information. Yeah. And that the information is always creepy because I know I also see there's this weird camp out there that's always going against analytics for whatever reason. Right. And analytics to me, I don't think that's a fair way of framing what it really is. It should just be called more information because really that's, that's right. just what analytics is. It's showing you what maybe the eye test can't see or stuff that's hard to just quantify. Well, now you can quantify it. Right. Well, and that's the thing too, right? It's like when, like if you were to see one of our reports, it's like you got your executive summary for any business, right? Give me the quick hits about this player, the main highlights. And if you want to continue further, you're going to be able to see all the subsections that tell you who he really is. And, you know, then when you start attaching it with the video of how he moves, how he looks, how he reacts, you can start to get a pretty good sense of who he is. His actions on the field, his ground balls, his routes. You know, we do the training stuff in the cages. So it's not just game. It's also practice stuff. And in that way, you know, you don't necessarily need to send a scout here and, and view him for four days. You know, you get a pretty good interpretation. And plus, you know, now that we've had a decent number of players sign and then some of our players that have signed have done well, then the reputation proceeds. Well, OK, you know, the USPBL is a pretty good place to go. So in, which has been nice because, you know, part of my job is just to build 
you know, not only the foundation of the reports and the, and the information, but also build the relationships, right? Yeah. I got to be able to build relationships with the club so they understand what we do and how we do it and why we made different. So it's taken some time, you know, with that stuff. But I think that we're definitely in a great spot. And we were really looking forward to, you know, starting, you know, this year. And we're very hopeful that we can in a short period of time to kind of continue to do what we do. Yeah, and I think with that, we can kind of shift to this whole, the plan to be the first league to have fans back in there. And I know when I first had read that, I was like, oh, well, that's that seems rather quick. But I'm just reading through more and more of the precautions, and it, it makes sense to me. So I was wondering if you could just kind of go into some detail about what the actual plan is for reopening. Sure. So we want to reopen with a very limited amount of fans, right? So we've already kind of like sectioned off areas of our groups and areas within our grandstand where we can maintain social distancing. And, you know, our ballpark holds roughly 5,000 and we would want to be at like 20% of that, right? And we think it's very easy to do to maintain a six feet of social distance, you know, and and make it easy to where everybody that comes to the ballpark, they get their temperature checked. we're, we're, We're basically having people wear the face mask and as they come in so it's like a lot of the things that are guidelines of the cdc we can abide by but i think that our greatest asset is our flexibility and you know from the player side we're not having guys hop on buses yeah. and travel to different cities and states it's all one ballpark we can track their movements from the host families and the families can basically be on board with the social distancing so it's a very strict adherence to I'm at the ballpark. We're providing the food. We're going to host family. They're providing the food. You know, the transportation is provided. So really for like two and a half, three months, you know, these guys, they know why they're here. And I'm not going to tell, I can't expect a 22, 23 year old male to like not venture out per se. You know, it'd be a little bit crazy to think, but for the most part, we can control enough things in the capacity where it's a little safer. Now we've got testing implemented on a weekly basis, you know, the temperature checks, and then we're going to have staggered stretch times and locker room times where guys are coming in and out. We're going to be sanitizing the balls. And, you know, most of the things that you probably have read on like the major league side or just business guidelines, you know, in general, we can implement in. And I think that because we've been a little strategic with, our players and, and being ready that we can basically have them come in, have a small 10 day ramp up and start to begin play. Now we not, we may not play six days a week, you know, but we can, we know we have the typical five games in a row at Jimmy John's field and we can kind of like, you know, get to the point where our guys can still have some time to kind of get into this game shape, so to speak. Yeah. Um, but for the most part, you know, we've had a plan, I think now, and it's, it's like a 200-page plan, right? But this yeah. doesn't just go for the baseball and the players. It's like food and beverage and, and groups and tickets. And we've submitted it, and we're on a work group, and we're very hopeful that we can get this thing going. We're just looking for, you know, the governor's office to give us some specific feedback of a relative timeline when this will happen. Yes. You know, and if she says, hey, you know, guy is going to be, you know, around July 10th. Okay, well, you know, I'm sure the USPBL would entertain the idea of starting to play and broadcast games with maybe no fans. Yeah. You know, but we don't want to hit the button to play and have no fans in a ballpark for two months 
um, and then we get three weeks. That wouldn't be the greatest business thing for us. Yeah, of course. And I know I saw throwing around that even if you do wind up having the situation where you can't play this year, the league still is in good financial shape and we will return the following year. But the one question that I'm kind of I've saw thrown around a lot for these limited fan settings in baseball stadiums and the like is when the game's over and fans go to exit, maintaining that kind of social distancing and how will that kind of work? Well, we just have, we have multiple exits now, you know, and it'll kind of be, if you think almost like a, like a wedding when the the bride and groom are are exiting, you know, they kind of tell you when you can get up. Yeah. So if it's like towards the end of the game, you got the mad dash, we'll just have certain groups flow out in certain times in different exits. Um, you know, instead of everybody saying, all right, well, I'm going to, you know, game's over. Let's go to, you know, the, the home, home gate and uh enter out there so we've we have the ability because we have multiple access to do it and if we're at this you know begin with 25 percent capacity it's a very realistic that we can do that okay and then i was just going to wonder a little bit on how you would enforce a lot of the mask wearing the social distancing because i know speaking for myself i'm in kind of northern new jersey here and i still see people walking around either without a mask just to begin with or they're walking right. around, they have the mask pulled down, so it's like, okay, the nose is exposed and the mouth is covered, but that's not really doing a whole lot of good right there. So I was just wondering how the enforcement of wearing the mask and the social distancing would work. Well, we're going to do what we can in terms of, you know, our our um, our fans coming into the ballpark with the mask and then the temperature check. And then obviously we're going to have a lot of signs up that says that maintain, you know, the mask and maintain your social distancing you know, upon walking around the ballpark, you know, but, you know, we're not, we can't police everybody, so to speak. And, um, you know, if it comes off, there's not necessarily a disciplinary action, you know, but if someone's outright choosing not to abide, you know, we can definitely ask them to leave. Okay. Yeah. I was just curious about how, how that would go. And so then I guess I'm going to kind of transition into just asking a little bit about What's it going to be like that fan experience while you're there? We already know the precautions are going to need to take place, the social distancing, the mask wearing, a bunch of hand sanitizing stations all around the ballpark. But from an entertainment perspective, I'm just curious what that experience is going to look like. Well, I think this is a great question. I think there's some definitely unknowns with it. You know, but I think that one thing that we've seen is, you know, people are ready to kind of get back in their cars. They want to go out to the lakes. They want to you know, be out and about. They want to enjoy you know, Michigan summer. And from everybody that we've spoken to, like, they want to they want to see a ball game. So I think that, you know, especially initially, like being able to sit in the stands, you know, maybe there's not as many like, you know, people there and it doesn't feel like it's this huge mega sporting event. But I think the fact that we know the baseball is going to be crisp out there. We know that you can sit in the sun and, you know, the, the scoreboard and sitting there with your hot dog, like, the, 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 the traditional experiences will be there. You can still go get a beer in the craft beer garden, and our promotions should run pretty smoothly, you know, regardless if there's 5,000 people or there's 50. So we still want you to be engaged with, you know, the, our, our offerings that we were planning. I just think that, you know, some of our, our crowd noise or the environment or the energy, you know, may not be as if it was at full capacity because we've done a great job of, you know, most of our home games, or I shouldn't say home games, because every game's a home game, um, selling out. You know, so there is an expectation there, right? And we know that, unfortunately, we can't be at that capacity, and we won't be close to that all, all season. But at the same time, 
I think the viewership of the game and having the unique experience of what Jimmy John's typically offers for the individual should be close. All right. Awesome. And then I guess as we kind of start to wrap it up a little bit here, where exactly going forward, let's say five years out, where do you see the future of the league heading? Well, so I think for us, you know, we want to position ourselves, you know, as I let off the call as like this development league for minor league baseball. Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you think about today's game with, you know, the, the potential contraction of all these minor league teams and, it seems like Major League Baseball wants to have less minor league teams and have triple, double A, A, and probably their their home uh, base team yeah. of that rookie in, in Arizona or Florida. You know, you're going to get rookie ball teams cut. You're probably going to get one of the A ball teams cut. And we want to be able to develop the players essentially almost for the clubs at those lower levels. And then once they're ready, we can compare data. Then that player can kind of go to that a ball setting, that high A setting. And I very well see us fitting into where you know you can get a call from an organization towards the end of spring training. Hey, we really like this guy. We don't have a place for him right now. We want to send them to you for, you know, a hundred at bats. We're gonna monitor him and we'd be interested in in signing them back. You know, we'll have him go play in the USPBL. And, you know, we can have this kind of exchange of players and kind of some, uh, you know, some communication back and forth about the development plan for that player. We can provide that out, you know, because, yeah, we'd be probably, you know, covering the expenses for the players, but we know the player can purely focus on what they need to get better. And we're not asking them to get on the bus and play a bunch of games and try to have the expectation of performing for the team. And they can just come here, you know, purely focus on what that team told them they need to get better. And in addition to that, I think that there's a market where, there are going to be more players trying to find jobs, right? There's probably going to be less rounds in the drafts. There's going to be an influx of players. So instead of a player driving around to try out, try out, try out, try out, to hopefully get an opportunity, we want the player to be able to drive somewhere and then understand, based off that tryout, how close he really is to actually getting a job. You know, instead of yeah. saying, ah, oh, you know, you just missed it or come back next year or we'll keep you on a call list, we'll give him that objective data in a dashboard to say, hey, look, man, you're uh, you're like our 300th best right-handed pitching prospect. Yeah. And maybe it maybe it just gives that person clarity to go take the bank job, you know, yeah. instead of just hanging on and hanging on. It's just like, okay, you know what? I did the best I could, and that's okay. Or on the flip side, you got a guy that says, huh, I'm in the top 5%, you yeah. know? And that dashboard and that data, and that could be viewable across all of independent baseball. And we could build that out. And I think that we have the capability and we know how to do it. And that's kind of the opportunity I think we want to provide for all these guys. There's so much uncertainty. We want to provide a little bit more clarity of where you are. And then if you're, if you're close and you're trying to figure out how to get there, we want to kind of give you a solution to do it. That seems like the perfect place to be. You help out. You have the connections with each with each of these major league clubs. You have the ability to develop players and obviously help them out and help them give them the ability to kind of sort out where they're going, where their future lies. Because there's dozens of players which, you know, they want to cling on to the dream, but maybe the dream's kind of it's a little out of their reach going forward. Right. And then no, that's exactly right. Yep. And then there's just one last thing I want to 
just kind of ask sure. here because I know I saw when Gastonia was still kind of up in the air before they decided to go with the Atlantic League. I believe it was there that I saw the United Shore League was interested in possibly yep. expanding to there. So I was wondering where you see kind of the expansion of the league itself. Well, I think there's still some local regional opportunities that have a lot of promise. And I think that one thing we've realized is, you know, a great next step could be something that is, you know, uh, a short bus ride away where there's a little bit of crosstown robbery with some of the players, yeah. you know, but it's not like we're going to ask our teams to go from, you know, Michigan to North Carolina on a weekly basis, you know. So even if we were in Gastonia, it would be kind of like a um, twice a season type thing, right, where these yeah. guys are playing against each other. We're minimizing tribal. We're still doing the development piece. You know, we were really close to, I think, being, you know, downtown Detroit last year and, you know, some things didn't work out there. Um, but we, we definitely got some opportunities, you know, without being too specific of where they are. And I think that kind of with the whole COVID thing, it kind of delayed some of that progress. But I think that, you know, within the next year, we should be hopeful that we've got something on the horizon. And I don't think that the USPBL is going to be something that we've got 10, 12 teams and we're, you know, we're traveling all around. We want to maintain our model. Yeah. I think the most important thing is, is that they, just like the baseball, right? We still want to maintain the experience you have of a USPBL game. And that's, that's the way we do it at Jimmy John's field. And I know Andy, you know, he wants to make sure that that, that second site, wherever that may be, offers a very similar experience. So a lot of things go into that and it kind of has to be the right fit, especially if it's a, you know, a different city. So, you know, we're very hopeful in the, uh, the near future. All right. Awesome. Being that we're kind of at the end of the interview, uh, this is normally the point where I hand the floor over to the guest to say anything you want to say, summarize anything you want to summarize, promote anything that you want to promote. So the floor is yours. Everyone listening that our league, you know, in terms of, where we are and where we're trying to go. I mean, we definitely want to provide a unique experience for our players and our fans, but from the player side, you know, I think that we want to be a solution based approach to where the expectation shouldn't be to come in and, you know, play, you know, 50 games to just show that, you know, your statistics, statistics warrant you kind of get into the next level. We want you to really come in and understand where you really are and we want to help you get there. And then we have the resources and you know, the relationships to help you do it. And sometimes it can be the quickest approach to do it, you know? And so I think that we just don't want to help our players. You know, we want to be able to, as we move forward, you know, help the game of baseball as a whole. Well, thank you for coming on. I appreciate you giving us the, your time to discuss all this. And I think it was very informative for everyone. Well, thank you so much. And uh, thanks for having me on and you guys have a great one. All right, so we'd like to thank Justin for just for coming on to the show. We appreciate him coming on again. As with every guest we've had to this point, more than welcome to come back on the show anytime he'd like. Uh, again, it was a very good interview, and he said a lot of very interesting things. Absolutely, yeah, great, you know, great interview. He gave him some really good questions, and he gave some really good answers. It was overall a really great uh, interview, and I think that you know when we have um, people on from these. Uh, leagues who necessarily aren't uh, always at the forefront it's always interesting to hear from them because there is you know such good stories from these leagues and they are so integral in many ways 
to the indie ball community as a whole, um, as you'll talk about in one second with the kind of plan they have and, you know, being a minor league for the minor league and these kind of things. So it's, uh, you know, really interesting stuff that, that's going on there. And I, I really enjoyed, uh, you know, obviously having the opportunity to listen to that and now talk about it a little bit. Oh, absolutely. There was whenever I go through and I edit the things before we kind of record the the rest of the show here, I always make notes while I'm uh, going through that. And there's a couple of observations I just generally made. It seems like I do take a lot off of that kind of Premier League model, where a lot of these teams seem to be kind of based off of youth academies and soccer. Uh, for those that are really kind of unaware on how the European soccer model works and really everything outside of the U.S. soccer model you don't really have a draft for players. You don't really necessarily sign guys. You have youth academies that you get guys when they're like 13, 14, 15. They'll train at a team facility and then they'll come up and then go to the main roster squad. And then eventually, you know, they'll have contracts with that big club and they could sign wherever they want when the contracts are up or they may have their contract uh, sold or they may be loaned to a team or whatever it may be there. It seems like they model a lot after that kind of youth academy aspect. And I'll talk more and we'll talk more about that kind of future outlook for them with the whole our MILB uh, contraction that's going on in the yeah. near future. But that kind of youth-like development model is something that's very interesting to me. More so, though, the thing that really is shocking to me, or I shouldn't necessarily say it's shocking, but is how they view analytics in this kind of big data revolution compared to these other independent leagues. I think I made note in the interview how Billy Horn, when he was on the show, was saying, we don't really give a darn about analytics they're right. great if you if they're good for you. Whoop de do. We more or less care about the counting stats and the kind of player you are on and off the field. That's what our goal is because our goal is to win games, not to develop guys. Right. And here in the USPBL, it seems like they put more of an emphasis on developing young players as opposed to their current skill level. They're fine making that trade off. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that really does, as you said, go against what, what Billy Horn said. Obviously, there's two different objectives, clearly, for two different types of leagues, right? I mean, uh, for I mean, any of the leagues, like American Association that we, we normally talk about, American, American Association, Frontier, and Atlantic League, if you don't win, the manager's out of a job. Done. But it's a little bit different, as he said, in the USPBL. It's not necessarily what they're what they're looking for price of winning is not as as high in that type of a league you know you're playing in one stadium and it's a very different type of atmosphere 100 percent, it's a totally different model and it, like I, I keep drawing back to it being based off of soccer and i again when you have a guy who starts and founds the league that owned a soccer club in the premier league i mean which is very well arguably the highest level of professional soccer you can get to sure. there's obviously going to be things that are going to transfer over and to have Kind of like an MLS-style ownership where you have one central body own all the teams in the league, play in this one particular facility, and run it like that youth academy where you have these days where guys are, you know, they're playing three, four days a week and they're training on those other days. And then it's all fairly well and isolated. Then how they have weekly data recaps, how the first thing they do when they get a player or a prospect is to make a profile for them, have them go through it and go, okay, you're pitcher number 15 in our system. You're a guy we're going to want to keep and develop. You're position player number 200. Maybe you want to look towards doing something else. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Uh, the smart way of going about it. And I think it's, you know, it's a different approach than we see in a lot of independent league baseball. And I think even a very different approach than major league baseball to a certain extent. So I think it's really interesting that, you know, obviously bringing in that soccer model is something that I don't think a lot of leagues would consider a lot of leagues would think about, but with, as you'll talk about in a few minutes, maybe is with the contraction of the MLIB, um, I am MILB, excuse me, then you're going to have some, you know, there's going to be some room for these type of leagues to really make some headway, especially on the analytics and data front. Exactly. I mean, I think they model themselves very well after an MLB front office where they have much more of a modern approach to it. They go by their analytic models and their scripts, and that's what they use as a guiding light, as opposed to a lot of these other independent league organizations that either A, just don't have the analytics or B, they they don't value them as much because, again, sure, it'll tell you what player is going to be good for you in the long run, but in the long run doesn't help you if it's a year-by-year thing when you need to put a winning product on the field every single year and you right. don't have that luxury, you know? So And that guy's definitely going to be gone next year. Exactly. I mean, that's the thing, too, where you have just such high turnover in a lot of these independent leagues where it's great if you have great analytics but if you have great analytics that probably means you're just going to have your contract purchased and you're going to be gone to the end of september so it doesn't really help you if you've got great analytics or not especially if you have great analytics and you still have a six era well yeah you know how much is that helping me if you're giving up six runs yeah great great spin rate i don't care <laughs> exactly it was a great spin rate when it went over the right field wall but yeah. <laughs> it really helped out the, the that spin rate really helped out the uh, exit velocity of that 425 foot home run you just gave up exactly <laughs> and i think right now i want to talk a little bit more about uh, the actual on the field preparations or the in-stadium preparations coming yeah. back from covid because that was the main reason we wanted to talk to someone from the uspbl because they were right. going to be that first league that would try i think actually first league in the u.s that wanted to start play they were shooting for like June 10th, I originally saw, but then that date got moved back because they didn't get the approval from the state government to do that. So they're shooting for right. July, which seems to be where all the independent leagues are kind of aiming for now. So they'll still be in that first kind of general wave of sporting events that will have fans back in the stands, if possible at all. They did say, if we have to play the first couple of weeks without fans, but we have the promise that we will have fans at some point in the year, we're willing to consider that option, possibly even go with that option. But we need fans at some point to make the season worthwhile to play. Again, being in the financial space to afford to not play the season and still survive is something that I don't think a lot of teams or a lot of leagues could say about themselves. So that's obviously a plus to them. The thing that I thought was interesting was when I asked about kind of the exiting this ballpark and how will you enforce the restrictions, the regulations, the social distancing precautions and the face masks and the whole nine there. And the exit strategy, fine, you know, you got multiple exits. That's all well and good. Makes sense. You could probably keep it fairly organized for that. But then the the answer came of well there's not really much we could do in the way of disciplinary actions but if someone's just outright refusing to wear a mask and and doing that kind of a thing then we'll just ask them to leave i thought that was an interesting perspective here because again when they're actually in the ballpark it goes back to the suspicion we had a couple weeks ago where it's well they're not really going to be able to keep up policing these precautions because again people are going to do what they want to do and if there's no real 
kind of hammer above their head or sword dangling above the head, they have no real incentive to follow the precautions. So that's still something that worries me. Yeah. And, and also, I, I think it is still something that worries me. And I think especially because, you know, how much staff are they going to have there? Probably not a whole ton. You know, I mean, even if he, he was like, it doesn't matter if there's 5,000 people or 50 people, if there's fans in the stands, you know, he said his sponsors would still be okay. He would still be able to create some kind of a atmosphere for fan experience, which I think is true to a certain extent. But really what I think it, it kind of comes down to, though, which is, in my view, quite problematic, is, like you said, if you can't have some kind of way to rein people in if they're really doing something that endangers a whole group of people, you know, if, if these games become dangerous, I mean, we'll see, right? We'll, we'll see with a lot that's going on right now, um, there's a chance for these the numbers of things to spike. And we'll see if that is the case, that get, you know, gathering in groups of people really does do it and really is... You know, part of a huge issue, as many of the scientists believe, then we're going to have, you know, I think it's going to be hard for a league like the USPBL because they just don't have the staff. You know, they just won't have the the volume of people to be able to tell people, uh, you know, OK, we're going to kick you out of the stadium. Well, one, there's no repercussions other than getting kicked out of the stadium. People are going to, you know, just do it. Uh, and two, the second is the second thing is if people don't want to comply uh, there might not be enough staff, you know, really police it, like you're saying. Exactly. There's no way they can really police it, which goes back to the to the main issue we raised. It still exists. Because, again, like in the examples we gave a couple of weeks back, where it's, if you see your buddies at a game, you're going to go sit next to them, even if you're not yeah. supposed to be doing that. Now, necessarily, that may not be the worst fate here, but the problem doesn't lie with that particular action. What the problem is, is then when you leave and one of you had it but didn't know it because you're asymptomatic. And now we have eight people that potentially have it that can go out and spread it to other people. Even if only right. one of you in a different group had it, well, great. If four of you, let's just call them two groups of four, we have one person that has it that probably spread it to everyone in their house. They went to the ball game, So we have four people now that are going to interact with other people, even with the great precautions in place. Now, if you sit next to another group of four because you recognize them, your friends with them, whatever it may be, now you expose those four. If one of them gets it, they all live in the same house. Now we have another four. So we have a total of eight now totally infected. Of those new four, they can also go interact. And you can kind of see how the web expands from there. That's always been the, the main qualm here. And yeah. I mean, I do appreciate the fact they're taking these great precautions and they're doing everything they can. Let's make that clear here. But just the restrictions on how much staff you can have and how much authority they actually do have. And let's be honest here, there's only so many fans you can reprimand and throw out of a stadium before it starts to really impact your bottom line going forward. I mean, if you become right. known as the, the place that throws fans out, it's funny how the context behind that ejection gets lost. So I, I definitely understand their predicament in the situation here, but it's still a concern of mine at least. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a, it's a health concern more than anything else. I mean, I understand that there's a lot of people who are very pro opening things up now as, as we've gotten there. And I, and I do think that, you know, there are places where it's responsible to open up. But I just think that if, you know, we're limiting mass gatherings and we've been doing so for months and months and months and months, it seems like it might, you know, be worthwhile to keep limiting mass gatherings for a while. I mean, uh, you know, until this is really, really under control. But it's possible that, 
and that that's not going to take place. And you know, we'll see. The U.S. Uh, PBL is going to really be at the forefront here, trying to figure out if this can work. If this experiment of having fans in the stadium will work. A hundred percent. It's going to be something that I'm interested to see. And but then when I did ask him about for the fans that will be there, what's that experience going to be like? How he said, well, it's going to be pretty traditional. It's going to still be engaging. I found that also interesting because I'm going to be very curious to see the specifics of that, to see what specifically is different and is the same. That was just one other element I had concern about, but I do think that's ease, how it's going to be kind of similar, that it's not going to be that much different than beforehand. I assume you still won't have uh, you know fans coming up on the deck outs to do your in-between innings uh, events and stuff. I assume that's still a no bueno, but... The fact that it's going to be at least on some level similar to what we have come to expect from at least the USPBL or what fans have come to expect from the USPBL is an encouraging sign. Yeah, I think that uh, if it does happen, I'll be excited. I'll be excited to see how it works out. Obviously, it's a it's a risk. There's no doubt it's a risk, but I think it'll be it'll be it would be it would be great to have some actual baseball to talk about. I can tell you that right now. In the United Shore League, have some actual prospects to talk about. Oh, hundred percent. Like I want them to play. Let's make let me make no qualm about that. I want them to play. I just want to make sure everybody's safe while they play. I think we're all on the same team here. Oh yeah. And it's just a matter of you got we're voicing some concerns we have that may not have been necessarily eased entirely. I am no. I I do like to see the precautions that were mentioned in the interview and that we've read in different articles and stuff. I like seeing that those exist and that those are going to be enforced on some level. It's just, I think these are the kind of, at least in these circumstances, you have to enforce these restrictions with almost draconian-like enforcement where it's a zero tolerance that it has to be followed. Otherwise, the whole system falls apart. And I'm not sure if that's a feasible thing, both A, practically, and B, just from a business sense. If it makes sense to be that uh, zero tolerance driven to a customer base you're going to need to rely on for many more years to come. Right. With both with both fans and players. I mean, right, like he talked a little bit about like, you know, not not limiting guys from going out. And it's like, well, exactly. you know, is that going to work? You know, if they get it and they spread it around or they get it from somewhere that's out and they spread it to the players that are staying where they're staying, is that a, you know, is that a serious issue? So I mean, I, I think that there's some there's some problematic things there. There are some real concerns, but I do think that it would be it would be fun if they did did play and it was safe. But I do think that there's a you know like I, I've said from the beginning that you know I, I would love to see baseball played, but I'm skeptical, and that's still where I'm at. I'd love to see baseball get played, in, you know, in any capacity, but definitely in in, in the USPBL, and I, and I'd love to see it get played, but. You know, we'll have to wait and see. They can iron out some of these things. And I do think you bring up some real concerns, some good concerns as to, you know, can you keep a fan base while trying to enforce these restrictions on them? I don't know. That's going to be the most interesting part of this whole quarantine element. And like you said, he said, there's not really much I can do to keep 22 and 23 year old kids from going out at night. And he is true there. I mean, like, what are you going to do? Keep the the college dorm situation you have, these guys living in under lock and key? I mean, that's not really a, a practical way of doing things. It's not a feasible way. Plus, right. these guys are, well, they're just recent college grads more than likely. 
I'm sure they have ways to get out of dorm rooms. Uh, that's not really much of a concern for them. And <laughs> even more so for the 400 to $600 a week they're being paid. I believe that's the amount I saw being thrown yep. around. Either way, it's less than a, it's less than a grand. Actually, I think it may have been per month, but I don't, again, I don't know the exact amount, but I guarantee you it's not a lot. I don't think they'd be willing to live in those kinds of conditions where they're just straight up not allowed out of the dorm room unless they're training or playing a game. Yeah, they're dealing with that for that price yeah but yeah that and then the last thing i want to do cover in the cover from this interview was their future because we teased that heavily in the beginning part of talking about this and yeah. justin seemed to be very focused on how this mlb con- or milb contraction we've made this mistake a couple of times now while talking about but uh, the whole contraction that's coming up with the affiliated minor leagues he, I almost get the sense he wants to turn, and the general consensus among the higher brass, wants to turn the USPBL almost into the Dream League, you know? Where you can develop yeah. your players, or less even so much of the Dream League, more like an NFL practice squad, where it's like, yeah. uh, we like our guys, we want them to develop more, but we can't carry them because we don't have the room anymore. Can you guys develop them? And then in a month or two, we'll We'll bring him back into the fold. Yeah, I mean, he even he even you know said it. He said, you know, a minor league for the minor leagues a little bit, and this is you know kind of an interesting idea. It's a kind of, it's an interesting idea, and I think it's a good way moving forward because there will be you know there will need to be places for guys to go, and uh, there will be really some uh, you know there will be guys who need developing, and this is a league that I think is particularly focused on development. And I, I like that. I think you need leagues like this because they really can help guys grow. And if you can, you know, even if it's one or two guys every year that are growing and becoming more successful. But I mean, look, with the contraction of the MILB, you'll have a lot, I mean, a lot of open spots available that are that are, are really talented guys that don't have the opportunity and are going to go look for places like that to play. I mean, that's going to be just a reality that, that's going to exist. You're going to have very talented ball players without a place to play ball. And if this league can kind of fill that gap and give guys that, like you said, they're a little rough around the edges, they're a raw prospect, and they just need some time to develop that other independent leagues can't afford to give them, I could very well see that working to their advantage. He implied and basically said, we're looking for expansion. I believe he said he, they almost wound up in the downtown Detroit at one point last year. They were in on Gastonia and there are some local markets they're looking at. I wouldn't be surprised to see them pop a stadium in or move into one of these now kind of open markets once all this uh, contraction business is done. Because yeah. they're, let's be honest, if you're a local city council, it's a pretty appealing deal. It is. Especially if the deal is, if you just dump a little bit more money into the facilities, we have four teams all going, because I assume they're keeping the model if you put four teams per stadium. Yep. You put put the money in, we put four teams into that stadium, and in exchange, we'll have those four teams playing, we'll cover even more dates than normal, because we'll have these guys playing like three, four days a week, so you're guaranteed those four dates a week during the summer. Plus, you have three other dates open where you could probably hold various other events. You could hold camps and whatnot. So let's call it, on average, four days. But let's say let's say five days a week. Five yep. out of seven days from May through September, there is an event going on at that ballpark. 
that's a pretty good deal. If you have that yep. many days on a calendar filled up, if you're a local council. It is. It's a great deal. And, and I think that's why, you know, I think it's why you could see this becoming a more popular league. And certainly if, from just a player standpoint, I mean, I would go play in that type of league, right? I mean, like, there's no doubt that, that a lot of players are going to think that that's appealing, that they're going to get developed and they're going to be able to work in a more one-on-one -on -one capacity with coaches and really, you know, focused on not just winning baseball, but understanding how to play the game, understanding the intricacies that are within the game. And there's so much, you know, to learn. I mean, at the major league level, I mean, there is so much going on, but even at like an Atlantic league level, there is still just so much happening. Uh, the, the game within the game is so incredible that it's, you know, there's so much for these guys to learn that I really do think that a league like this, that could help a guy develop and, you know, un understand some of those more intangible skills, uh, not un intangible skills, but some of those more, uh, you know, on the field, skills that you need to learn i think that would be really indispensable for a lot of young guys oh i, I agree with that definitely it's it's the development league that needs to exist and i definitely see it expanding and becoming a very big deal although i do have one theory and i'm not sure where i got it from i just got like this kind of gut feeling or gut sense i wonder because of their heavy analytical focus and with the mlb atlantic league partnership deal that still has one more year left on it. They presumably will be keeping their whole, uh, you know, analytic approach where they do now start to have at least the, the analytics available to uh, to the players. I wonder if almost they'd be willing to be a pipeline league directly to the Atlantic League, almost be the affiliated league to an independent league. I can see that, and I think that would be a really good move for them and something that really kind of helps them solidify themselves as a top-tier developmental league. I think that could really be something that would uh, aid them because you'd you'd have a lot of guys who would eventually trickle their way into the affiliated system. And, you know, now with the new streamlined affiliated system, perhaps even some guys are trickling away into the, uh, the major leagues. Yeah, see, that's, that's my thought here. Because if you assume there's still going to be at least a working partnership with the Atlantic League and Major League Baseball, and I think I've said before on the show, I wonder if they're almost interested in trying to make the Atlantic League the dream league, being that they could essentially fill a very similar void. But if you had a, a loose partnership with the Atlantic League and Major League Baseball going on for the foreseeable future, it would help you if you're the USPBL to have a deal going with the Atlantic League. Now there's only one degree of separation from you and Major League Baseball. And yep. that's another selling point. You're aligned with a league that's existed for, what, about 20 years now? And that gives you some great credibility. Actually, more than 20 years now, starting in the 90s, late 90s. So closer yeah, to 25 years now. So you have a league that's existed for a quarter of a century that has a loose partnership with the largest baseball league in the world. That's the kind of credibility that would be very nice to have, especially if you say, well, we do this for, say, five to ten years, then we break off on our own and go directly for Major League Baseball. It's certainly a doable thing. Now, granted, I assume they'd like to try and get something directly with Major League Baseball now, or if not directly, kind of a wink and a nod type thing. But I certainly think that's something that's, I don't want to say in the cards, but something that's at least an appealing option to look at at some point. 
It is, I think, definitely. And yeah, I mean, I think the, the USPBL is in a space right now in this kind of COVID-19 world. They could be one of the, the leagues that actually plays baseball and it could really help their popularity, especially if, you know, they live stream games. You know, there could be people who get really interested in, you know, these developing prospects just because of this. And moving forward, like you're saying, if they have this type of great season or you know even just a a playing some games because they'll have uh the ability to do so uh, and and maybe you know i i don't foresee um some of the bigger leagues certainly not somewhere like the frontier league having every team play uh so i think you're going to have a lot of these teams just not be able to play and so as a result i think you have a really good opportunity for the USPBL to kind of say, uh, you know, where do we go from here? How do we expand? How do we become, you know, something that's a little bit more than what, what they are at this point? And I think that's how they do it. And going through the Atlantic League is probably a great idea, considering that is the undoubted premier uh, independent league. And we've talked about it with, you know, multiple people on the show and over and over again. Every person inside Indie Ball has said the Atlantic League is the top, and so if you, can, you know they're they're probably better off making the, the deal with the uh, Atlantic League because it'll give them more widespread connections within Indie Ball than even if they made a deal with just straight up Major League Baseball. I would agree with that, but I always do think being directly connected to Major League Baseball, if that's your end goal, it's always better to get that done sooner than later. Plus, I think having Major League Baseball attached to your name, it has more brand recognition. And let's be honest, if you're dealing with 20-year-old kids that played baseball for a D2 or D3 school in uh, the southern U.S., they probably don't know what independent league baseball is, but they definitely know what Major League Baseball is. So I would say that would help your branding out a little bit. But just to continue on the theory for just one more second before we go on to other things to talk about, I will say this much, though. I'm very I'm very interested to see if that would happen just because I'm trying to figure out why the Atlantic League would want to go in with the partnership like that. On one hand, yeah, you'd have a steady pipeline of players, but if you don't have any teams near where they're centrally located, it doesn't really help you much. And if those players aren't up to your level of Atlantic League play, then it doesn't terribly help you much either, you know? Yeah, I know, and, and that my point about Major League Baseball is not to say that you know Atlantic League has more uh, you know uh, clout, I guess is the word you would use, than than Major League Baseball, but it's to suggest that the guys, the talent pool, who they're going for, you know, we talked to some guys who have said, you know, the Atlantic League for some guys is the major leagues. And, you know, there might be some guys in the USPBL who the Atlantic League is the major leagues for. And so I think that it's very important to kind of, you know, delineate the type of talent. Now, you know, if you're, if we're getting talking about a reduction in uh, MILB teams and you're talking about new talent being infused in, it might be a higher level. But certainly from what I would gen- generally think of in terms of Atlantic League talent, I think there's a lot more of that than there would be, you know, guys who would actually make it into the major leagues. But certainly from a branding perspective, it makes sense. And from the Atlantic League side of things, the reason they would do it would be to get that steady pipeline, but also because it just it's another partnership that allows them to get their kind of message across, get themselves more, and also it allows them to continue to consider expansion, and particularly into regions where they're a little bit uncomfortable, as in Michigan or 
or somewhere in the in the more middle middle part of the country. And so I think that there's a lot of really interesting work to be done there for the Atlantic League if they can kind of branch out into those markets. The expansion aspect is a good point to make there. I didn't really necessarily consider that. But yeah, if they're looking to get into those middle regions of the country, that is definitely something that they'd be interested in, especially if you're able to put a couple of teams in there and they've shown that at least in kind of these local municipalities that there's at least interest in getting new ballparks built. And it seems like they have extremely stable ownership. So if you can have them kind of heading some sort of a Midwest expansion or at least a light expansion and look into these markets and you have Appleby, Bolton, Califer and company all behind that kind of move, I think it would definitely help there, especially if you're looking for that kind of middle of the country expansion. I'm not sure how much Bolton's name, how much weight that carries as opposed to Applebee's, who's, I think, more well known in that region of the country than Bolton, who seems to be very well known, at least on the eastern seaboard side of things. Now, I'm not well versed in all of that uh, behind the scenes and kind of business aspect, but it is something to consider. I agree, yeah. And I think there's a lot of interest there, no doubt. All right. So I think with that said, I just want to quickly wrap up thoughts on the interview and everything in general. I took away from this that the United Shore Professional Baseball League, it's a very scientific league. It's very well ran. It values data. It's very uh, modern. They they know what they're doing. And I do expect them to be a boom league soon where you're going to see at least one other stadium, one other four team grouping pop up somewhere in the near future. Agreed. Yep. What I took away from the interviews is the, that it's really a great league. It's really an interesting league. It's a league that is well run uh, and has a really bright future ahead of it. And I think it's one of the leagues that is, uh, as you said, really uh, in, in a good position to kind of ride out this COVID storm and then really kind of see a jump once things start to get back to some form of new normal and there's people going back to baseball games in mass, then you can really uh, see a, a United Shore League taking off. So I think there's a lot of good things coming down the pipe from them. And also, I, I think that it's just this interview really showed me how difficult, you know, conti- that this COVID situation continues to be, that even the best laid plans, you know, they, they don't work out. Like you know, like we were talking about the June uh, de- uh you know, start date for this league that clearly just didn't happen because of, you know, all of the numbers, um, the scientists and the local governments and the state governments and all of that going on there. So I think it's a really interesting time uh, to be covering these type of issues. And I think that the United Shore League certainly is a, is a really good, like I said in the opening, case study for, uh, you know, COVID-19 and how it will impact uh, minor league and independent league baseball on a grand scale. Absolutely. And so, again, thank you to Justin for coming on the show. We appreciate it. Uh, I also appreciate everyone that went in to help uh, set up the interview itself with the United Shore League in general. So uh, thanks for coming on the show. Welcome back anytime. And with that said, we'll now shift to our next topic, which is the MILB releases. So it made news that there was mass releases of players in affiliate minor league baseball that were being released. I touched on a little bit last week on the solo show, and my point was I don't really care that they're being released so much because we were at record low releases for March and April, and now May and June are going to have to make up for those as these are guys that were going to get cut anyway. Timing's not great. 
And my major qualms with all of this was that some teams seem to not want to pay their minor league guys, but expect to retain the rights on them, which in my book, that doesn't fly. Either you pay your players and maintain their rights, or you don't pay them and they're free agents to sign wherever they please. But that's a whole other issue. We, I talked about that last week. And so I just wanted to run through some of the names of guys that got released that indie ball fans would know. So here are some of the ones. Uh, these are all the releases. This is through the list of releases, rather, through June 1st. So some of the names that people will know. <clears throat> this will mainly focus for Atlantic League and Frontier League fans. However, there are a few American Association guys mixed in there. So we have Dante Bichette Jr. He was doing great in High Point last year, was very good for Harrisburg. I was a bit surprised to see him released, but uh, he did get released. Uh, that's a shame just because he is, is, you know, such a, did have such a great year for Harrisburg last year. I wouldn't be surprised to see him get picked up uh, by another uh, affiliated club. Mm. Uh, Ryan Burke's another guy. He was a little bit in Milwaukee, I believe, and also a high point, or not high point, a Rockland guy last year. Uh, Keon Barnum, he was the independent league player of the year for Chicago last year, American Association there. Uh, TJ Rivera, he was a Long Island Duck for a little bit, former New York Met. He, the Phillies released him. Uh, Max Murphy, Zach Borenstein, Tim Melville. Tim Melville, if you remember, he actually did have a, a couple major league games pitched, and he didn't, he didn't do terrible in them, but, uh, he, right. he wound up getting cut. Uh, Joey Turtislavich, uh, Lancaster Barnstormer. Ah, uh, yes, I yep, remember him. Yep. Nick Rumblow, uh, he was a Sugarland Skeeter. Yep, Johnny Helwig, uh, he was in the system. I believe he's now overseas, but he was a jackal for a little bit. Uh, Ryan Newell, because he was in Sussex last year. I believe he's their closer. He did very well. And then Austin Bebans Dirks, uh, he was a Lancaster Barnstormer for a little bit. So those are some independent league guys that got released. And as for two of the guys released, I did see their names pop up on uh, teams that signed them. Ben Spitznagel, I believe he is now with Schomburg. And then Brandon Lebryant, uh, or Lebryant, uh, he got signed by High Point. So another dangerous arm for High Point there. Yep. But uh, yeah, a lot of former independent league guys there. And some names that I was kind of surprised to see wind up getting cut. Yeah, me too. There's a lot of names there you wouldn't think. You know, Rumblow, great arm, and uh, was in the Yankees organization for a while. Obviously, Bichette Jr., really great uh, baseball lineage and a great baseball family, and really played, you know, lights out both places he played last year, uh, High Point, and then again in, uh, with the Harrisburg Senators. And so, yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a, and the, the list goes on, and there's just a lot of guys, you know, Joey uh, Turtislavich, who really, really lit it up for Lancaster last season. Uh, so, I mean, it's it's certainly uh, you know interesting to see some of those guys get released, and you have to feel like maybe at least in part it's due to uh, economic reasons with the COVID, you know, making business decisions to cut some guys who you might keep, but just because it's, you know, a little bit cheaper to keep other guys around instead of those uh, that you have. Uh, you know, could be part of the the issue there, but uh, you know, because I know I don't know how many of the minor leaguers are getting paid or necessarily what the deal is that because I do know certain you know players have come out and so sort of talked about paying minor leaguers and there's a there's a lot of you know difficult things going on, but certainly I think that um, you know seeing those somewhat big names, especially for the independent leagues, is, is certainly surprising. Yeah, no, I, I was a bit surprised to see some of the guys be shot. Like I said, it was surprising to me. Keon Barnum, I shouldn't have been as surprised as I was. But again, independent league player of the year, I kind of expected him to at least 
get to uh, the end of a revised spring training. Ryan Burke was another guy who I thought did very well last year and at least deserved to shop at playing in a training camp game or being in AAA or something like that. TJ yeah. Rivera, he was a good player for the Mets as a bench player before he got injured. And then yeah. he did very well in Long Island, and I thought he was deserving of a shot here. And, you know, there's other guys there. Melville was another guy that I was surprised with. Ryan Newell yeah. was very good last year for Sussex, so I was very surprised about him too. But Yeah, he was great. Uh, yeah, but I'm just uh, – I was a little surprised at that. But, again, I think you're right with COVID that – it means that these guys have to get cut. But then again, at the same time, I'm under the impression of how many of these guys would have remained on an affiliated roster under usual circumstances? How many would have been cut at the end of spring training? How many of them would be playing in double A AA or triple A right now, as opposed to wherever? I think that I, the only thing I will say is if they're always planning on having these guys at the top of the chopping block list to release them in, say, April, I think, would have been a lot better than releasing them now. Sure, they got another month and a half of, you know, pay. They got May's pay. But if they would have at least been a free agent for that extra month, at least with some of these guys, like I'm sure Melville and Rivera, they could have at least looked for overseas opportunities. They could have went yep. and tried to play in Korea, play in Japan, who are now starting to get back into games. And Korea's obviously been playing for about a month now. But still, I think that was a little bit shitty on their end. But uh, some of these guys, I suppose it was a better thing of anything because at least they still got to make something and at least be on or in the system a bit. So then I imagine a lot of the teams that cut players, if we do get back to playing and independent leagues do play, obviously those guys will find their way onto our roster. At least most of them will. And yep. hopefully cool. then leagues will be open to re-signing them at the end of the year. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the thing is that what it does is it takes away guys like these uh, chops, you know, their opportunities. Um, and, and it is all about the opportunity at a certain point. So I think it does take away the opportunities a little bit. But I mean, what can you do? This is the, the world we live in now. Exactly that. And also with the expectation that there's not going to be an affiliated minor league season, too. I got to imagine that also played into it. If you got guys that, you know, aren't going to be on your shuttle squad, if Major League Baseball does get to play this year, then I suppose the logic is what sense is there in keeping them around, you know? Right, yeah, if they're not a top prospect or a guy you see really see developing into a, a MLB star someday or at least a productive MLB player in the long term, you're not going to keep them, on, not going to keep them around, clearly. Exactly. So, I mean, it's unfortunate, but I just thought that was something to, to mention there. Moving on to the next thing, the New York Boulders have, a, have announced that they will have a summer league at Palisades Credit Union Ballpark. Uh, it will start on July 12th, pending government approval. Six weeks, 45 games, uh, no fans in attendance. They will stream the games on YouTube. Social distancing is required. $100 deposits will be refundable but that's needed uh pitchers will pay thirteen hundred dollars so one thousand three hundred and position players will pay two thousand dollars uh and like i said it's going to be at the rockland ballpark and it will be a wood bat league for the participants there so that will yeah. be happening for them i also had noted that there was other events listed on the Eventbrite page however uh rockland tweeted about that saying well we just can't put a to be determined date in there there needs to be a, a firm date in for the Eventbrite to show the events so uh, those are pre-covid dates so those have no real effect on anything yep 
And so, yeah, I mean, I think this will be interesting if it does happen. We'll have to see uh, if New York's government allows it to happen. Obviously, Rockland County did have a, a decent uh, outbreak. So it's certainly I don't know where the numbers are now, um, but it'll be interesting to see if they are able to do this it would be a lot of fun, I think, for it's great for Rockland to get some uh, some baseball being played and some revenue being generated and good opportunity for these players. So, I mean, I think there's a lot of good stuff that could come out of it. Obviously, it's not the type of baseball we would love to see being played in Rockland County, but it's certainly a start to be interested to see it, although it, it does suggest that maybe, uh, you know, there won't be a whole lot of other type of baseball, you know, the uh, of the Frontier League variety being played uh, during that time period. Yeah, that's something I saw tossed around and asked a lot, like, does this mean there's not going to be a frontier season? And honestly, I don't know what to make of it. Between some of the stuff we're going to talk about next in the Somerset grouping of news, and then some of the stuff I see for the American Association and everything, it's very hard for me to say one way or the other whether or not we're going to have baseball there. Um, Plus, if it's six weeks and it runs to, what, the end of August for the summer, for the uh, Collegiate League? Which yep. I mean, you can manage it. Obviously, if you do if you do the math, it's a bit tough. You'd play about a game a day, roughly speaking, in order to get everything through and to run smoothly. But I suppose you could run some double headers and stuff to make things work to free updates for Rockland to be at home, and you could move stuff around and make it work. I do wonder if this means the Frontier League may be looking at different models. Maybe not every team playing at their home ballpark, but instead teams that want to play this year play at uh, different hub cities instead. So say maybe they pick, I'm just going to pull two random cities here, they pick Florence and Sussex. And they say, okay, we're going to house all the players around these two locations. The teams will play games against each other. And we will generate revenue, and then we'll split it amongst however many team owners there are that participated, or something along those lines. I don't know how that will work out. Obviously, Hub Cities is an idea that's a lot better suited for, you know, major leagues as opposed to minor leagues, but I wouldn't rule it out one way or the other. I just see this as Rockland saying we want to host something in our ballpark, so that way it's at least being used, and there's at least some baseball being played. I mean, uh, yeah, I like the fact that Rockland, at least there'll be some kind of baseball being played. And Yeah, I mean, I don't know what to make of it either. I mean, it could work, but I, I really don't. I don't know what kind of omen it is. We'll talk about the Somerset in a second, and I think they're uh, they're given a very different feeling. Uh, Somerset and the American Association article that he sent me, you know, I think there's a, a very different feeling going on there. Absolutely, and we'll move to that now, but just before we quickly do... I will say, though, one way or the other, it does look like we will have some baseball to talk about in a month from now, whether it be a college wooden bat league or United Shore League or hopefully Atlantic League, as we'll kind of jump into now, uh, starting off with some of the minor Somerset news. They finished installing their extended nettings. It covers the entire lower seating bowl now. Unless you're sitting in a group area or the grass, uh, you now have a basically netting up to prevent a ball from hitting you while you're not paying attention. We've talked about this when they mentioned they were going to install it. It kind of sucks because it does obstruct the view a little bit, but you get used to it. And with more fans paying attention to their phones now than they are to the game being played, it's probably a good thing to have the netting. Also, 
Sometimes a ball coming off a bat, it comes in really hot and really fast, and you don't see it coming, even if you are paying attention. And even if you do, yep. and you get your hand up in time, it's still going to hurt like a mother. So yeah. it's probably a good thing to have the net there. Yeah, it's a good thing to have the net there. I mean, I, I at one point in my life, I was I was against the net. You know, not, I was like, yeah, that's not baseball. But you know what? I'm at, I now understand that there are some serious health concerns uh, that go along not having the net. So it seems like it's something that is a really good thing and only can help uh, and not hurt. So it's, uh, you know, in the end, give up my traditional baseball. Forget the netting. I like catching the foul balls. Uh, put the netting up. Make sure people are, are safe, especially in this more plugged in and technological world. Where we're all paying attention to our phones instead of the game. Kind of going down to the piece of Somerset news that everybody actually wants to hear about and has been waiting for, I'm sure. On Thursday, they've held an informal workout. It was supposed to be 90 minutes long. It ran on for three hours because people just wanted to be playing baseball. And you had a slew of players there, some under contract with Somerset, like Scott Kelly, Justin Pachitoli, James Puglisi, Pat Dean, Josh Almonte, and Taylor Wright. And then they had others there that aren't under contract with them. Uh, Zach Rakuzin, Anthony Pironi, Ari Kaufman, Burt Reynolds. Jackal fans will probably remember Ari Kaufman. Also, New Britain Bree fans will remember Ari Kaufman. Zach Rakuzin, he is from Bergen County, New Jersey, so a local kid. I believe he got either traded or released and then signed with the Boulders. So I believe he is now a Rockland Boulder. I know he was in Lake Erie last year, though, so... He's one of uh, one of the guys under contract. Burt Reynolds, I think, was an American Association guy last year. He did all right. I think he's pretty pedestrian there, so maybe he gets a shot around the Atlantic League. And then Peroni was recently released from an MILB organization, so hopefully those three guys will get signed there. But regardless, uh, the workout was held. Uh, all precautions taken, include, including uh, temperature checks, hand sanitizer, uh, which was very weird to see a guy come out of the dugout, get their temperatures scanned, and then hand sanitized for running out to a baseball field. But it's a site we're going to have to get used to, at least in the short-term future. Yeah. The important thing to note from all of this is that it was just an informal workout. While, yes, there was a lot of, well, major local news affiliates. I know News 12, which is the primary New Jersey-centric news station for yep. well, New Jersey. And then there was uh, CBS that was there, I believe, as well as NBC, the local New York affiliates. Uh, this doesn't really mean that baseball's imminent. It's not going to be coming back in the next few weeks. It just means that they were holding a workout at the ballpark. And uh, there's, I want to read a lot into it. I really do. And I'm sure you do, too. Oh, yeah. But I, I, I really do caution against doing that. Yeah, no, me too. I, I, I wanted to. The minute I saw it, I was like, yes, we're back. We're back in business. But then, you know, you listen to some people talk about it. And you realize, you know, for the most part, it is it's it's given fans hope, but it, it's also helping these guys out. I mean, I'm sure they're dying to get out there. You know, it was going to be a 90 minute practice turned into three hours. I mean, these guys are just dying to get back out there. But it's, you know, it, it's a difficult situation we're in. And I caution, I too caution reading too much into it. Here's, this is not the suggestion that the entire Atlantic League is going to, you know, reopen and, and we're going to be having fans in the stands and everything's going to be ready to go. No, I, I mean, it's a good step. It's a step in the right direction for people who, like us, want to see baseball being played. It's a step in the right direction, but it's not, it is not a bit too much of a step. It, it's, it's a baby step. 
you know, it's a very small step and there are still a long, long way to go before we ever see, uh, you know, a first pitch of a Atlantic League game back in Bridgewater. Yeah, like you said, it's baby step forward, but the important thing is that it happened and that we're going forward now and not going backwards. Now, as long as we continue to go forward, that's the important thing. Teams could start practicing, I believe it was like May 26th that they could start doing that. So the fact that it happened on May 4th, or not May 4th, um, what am I talking about? On June 4th is not that surprising. It takes a couple, it takes a week to get organized and then everything else makes sense from there. So I could definitely see that happening. It's a positive thing that happened. The thing we have to watch out for is when can these states, primarily Pennsylvania, New York, New Jersey, allow fans to be in attendance for games? That's the magic number. That's the magic announcement. Because right now, at least in New Jersey, 25 is the camp and outdoor events, if I'm still correct on that. It may have up to 125. I don't know for certain. Either way, not enough. You need to be at... What would you say? At least twelve hundred fans? Would you say, possibly yeah. a little bit more, possibly two thousand? I mean, I would say before you can seriously start considering it, it has to, at the bare minimum is over a thousand. But realistically, to make it worth it for especially a team like Somerset, because Somerset could easily pull in five thousand fans a game, easily. So it's really like you said, got to be almost two thousand, and, and still, you know, I mean, Somerset, you know, they could really pull in five more. They averaged over five thousand fans a game. I'm sure their high games were, you know, sick of the capacity is at TD Bank, but I'm sure they had some games that were at capacity because they really are a a high draw in the Atlantic League, and it's you know it's it's going to be difficult if they're playing at you know less than half capacity, which is what we're talking about, and it'll be hard. And so I think that. Uh, you know, before you can start, if we're going to have 2,000 people together, gathered together, you know, that's a start. But until then, it's going to be hard. It's going to be a challenge. Yeah, a third's the magic number that's been thrown around, I've seen. The teams expect a third. If they can have a third, they can have a season. So I think probably about 1,200 to 1,500 is the magic number. If they can get that many, I think we're we got game on. Now, granted, yeah. I still think we're a bit of ways away. I mean, New Jersey's not letting hair salons open until June 22nd. So yep. if we're not going to be getting haircuts until the 22nd of June, I don't see baseball being played on the 4th of July, at least yeah. in the Atlantic League. Now, I know today, and I think I mentioned this at the beginning of the show, that uh, Long Island enlisted the help of a local rep, I believe it's a state senator, that is now calling on the governor to allow them to host games, to allow Long Island to have games in mid-July. Now, I'm not sure how far that's going to go, but if by mid-July you can have New York, New Jersey, and uh, Pennsylvania all on the same page, now you have four teams. Now, granted, that's not great because you only have four teams plus Sugarland, which is going to be an issue to get players from, you know, the eastern seaboard, northeast corridor, down to Texas. So, and then you only have five plus a Road Warrior team if you really want them. But I think that's going to make matters a lot more difficult because you know they don't have permanent housing. Their permanent housing is hotel rooms, so that's right. going to be a problem there. But. It makes it a lot easier, at least, if you have the two Pennsylvania teams, your New York team, your New Jersey team, your Texas team. I got to imagine North Carolina would be at least close to coming into fruition. So that would help, too. And then you're just left with what, Maryland? Yep. Yeah, so then Maryland may or may not come. Who knows there? But if you could at least get four teams, I think they'd be 
at least willing to entertain the idea, especially if you have York, Lancaster, Somerset, and Long Island. None of that's too far of a bus ride. It's doable, especially if you rent out a whole floor of a hotel room. You can control the environment a lot more. It's really about controlling the environment because teams are going to have to travel. And again, hub cities, I'm not sure how realistic of a plan that is for, uh, for these independent leagues. Just both fiscally, just managing it money-wise, and also about how the money's going to get split up. That's really where the concern is. Not so much buying the hotel rooms and everything, that's going to cost money, but I don't see a team ownership group saying, well, we're not using my ballpark, and we're not really, I'm not selling merchandise, I'm not selling concessions, I'm not making money on the deal. I don't want to have to pay for players to go play in somebody else's ballpark where they're going to draw all the money in just to get, you know, an eighth of the cut. That's not really fair in my mind. An eighth of a cut of a third of a one third capacity crowd, that's gonna be peanuts compared to what you're gonna be paying the players. You're never gonna cut even. So I I don't know if hub cities are a realistic option there. I don't think so. I don't think hub cities are a realistic option. I think, you know, if we do see baseball it'll be in a very limited form but not every team playing, right? I think that's the reality is that just, you know, leagues might reopen. But you know, because like New York and New Jersey got hit really, really New York, New Jersey, and even Pennsylvania got hit really hard, really early on. But for the past few months, we've been on, on a, a significant downslope. I mean, I think, you know, there's different, uh, different numbers that come out depending on who you at. look to the New York times today says has on their tracker for us just a little bit, a tick over a few ticks over 400 new cases. I think Murphy had a different number, but I don't know how he counts it as compared to how the New York Times counts it. But either way, you know, 400, uh, you know, over 400 cases is a lot different than where we were when we were getting, you know, had almost 4,000 new cases a day just a few months ago. So it really does lead me to believe anyway that in this region that, that we're located in has the opportunity to open but I don't know if that's going to be true across the nation, which has con- con- seen a continuous rise in cases. Exactly. That's the issue. I mean, I think I saw in New Jersey, we're down to below 2,000 cases in total now, which is a huge plus. And I want to say New York finally had its first day without any COVID debts, the city of New York, that is. So right. if that's any indication, then we are definitely on the, the back end of the curve, which is definitely a plus side. But like you yep. said, if the rest of the country isn't, that's a problem. Especially because when you figure most of these guys that are playing, they're in Florida, they're in California, they're in Texas, states that have already either just straight up ignored doing the social distancing thing, or they really weren't as stringent with their lockdowns, it didn't last as long, they weren't as pressing, and they weren't taken as seriously by more people. If you have all those guys coming in from high-risk areas into this area... Mm, there's a good chance one of these guys got it. Now, granted, I've heard that some players had it while they were playing overseas in winter ball, and it wasn't that bad for them. They handled it. That's great. But still, if they have it, they can give it to other people around here because there's just so many people involved with the ball club. So it's really about keeping everybody healthy and making sure they're healthy when they're here. And when they're here, making sure they have a place where they can quarantine for 14 days. Yep, I agree with that. So with that, we'll go to the final topic we really got for the show, which is the American Association season. So we're going to spend a little bit of time on this, make our big announcement, do our plugs, and then get out of Dodge. So the American Association season 
Uh, it looks like it's going to happen. Uh, Joshua, the commissioner of the league, wants to have a season. They, he wants to have it badly. A lot of other GMs and team officials want to have a season. The real question is about uh, Winnipeg. They may be a road team. They may be based out of the U.S., so they may not play in 2020. Obviously, Winnipeg is in Manitoba, Canada, making crossing the border a necessity for them, which is obviously something that's very difficult right now. Right. <laughs> With the intent of playing this year, there really isn't too many major hurdles for the American teams. You can do something. The Hub City idea, which we've seemingly set our piece on, there's traveling to to and fro, you could quarantine, you could do things. There's ways of making it work. It's a lot easier than dealing with a border. You don't have any major border here, especially if in the majority of the states that these teams are located in, if they're COVID good, they don't have that many new cases, their their deaths are dropping rapidly, all of a sudden now it becomes a, a possibility to play this year. Supposedly there are six contingency plans in place, including plans that have the full 12 team slate playing some without the full 12 team slate playing and ones that do include hub cities this is the reason we keep mentioning hub cities is because apparently there's an american association plan that uses them as well how practical that is who only knows uh, so i have no idea what the deal is there Apparently, there was a drop-dead date in late May, but because the information kept evolving and things were looking more and more positive, that got pushed back. And supposedly now, when you do the math on the one article that I found and read and will be linked in the show notes, June 21st is our new date, that we will know something by then. So hopefully, we'll have some information in the next coming weeks so that way we can say one way or the other what's going to happen uh i saw a rumor of a fourth of july start or around fourth of july and uh yeah the season could go from 80 games now to 60 games and the sioux fall gm is confident in having american association baseball being played in 2020 well, that's so. That's a lot of confidence that I might not have, but you know what? Maybe they know something. You know, they have different metrics and statistics they don't need, need to hit. Maybe they have better coordination than I think they do uh, with certain, uh, you know, state and local officials. And maybe they're seeing different data than I am. Uh, and and it very well could be that we have American League, American Association uh, baseball, and I'd be. I'd be the, the first one who's the happiest about that, let me tell you. Oh, absolutely. I'd love to be able to stream, you know, American Association Baseball and have independent league baseball to talk about. We can actually talk about games. If this were to happen, it'd be so great, and I'd be so pumped for it. Again, though, there's a lot of hurdles there, but the reluctance to cancel the season, the reluctance to to do anything in that regard, the silence that we keep hearing out of the league and the seemingly constant changing drop dead date tells me they really, really, really want to play and that they at least see signs that something is going to be feasible, you know? So I'm, yeah. I'm really hopeful. I don't want to say I'm hopeful we're going to see something play. I do want to see it play. I'm, I'm hopeful of getting baseball, but I'm not necessarily hopeful at the prospect of there being baseball. Yep, uh, I think it would be great, and I'm really, really looking forward to it. I think the, the American Association is, is fighting the good fight here. Uh, I think I'm looking forward to July. I think July could be a good month, and we'll know. Right? <laughs> That's the month we'll know. One way or the other, there will be baseball, there won't be baseball. We will find out in July. <laughs> Absolutely. And then I suppose we should make the big announcement that we have here, which 
I mean, I, I've been waiting for this for quite some time. That's the the Texas Airhawks. They have a brand new website that it's they changed 2010 looking website to a much more up to date, sleeker looking one. Yeah, that's it. I mean, and that's very important. I mean, I think the the uh, Airhawks had a very bad looking website for a long time, but now, yeah, the new one does look nice. Looks good. Some will regard that as a big announcement, but some would regard the other announcement that we're about to make as the as the big one that's worthy of the hype, as opposed Perhaps. to just another website, which is regarding our guest next week. At <laughs> least as of right now, tentatively scheduled, because I do need to hop back on the DMs and uh, square away a date and time. But uh, we just spent some time talking about the American Association, and we had a lot of questions regarding the hub cities and about playing. So yep. who better to ask about the upcoming American Association season than the commissioner of the American Association? I couldn't think about anybody better to ask than that. Well, then, you know, tentatively, we're going to be able to ask him that next week because as of right now, he's scheduled to be our guest for episode number 66. Well, that sounds like uh, sounds like something we're gonna we're gonna need to have people be listening to then, huh? I uh, know. For anyone that's stuck around for now, nearly the uh, past ninety minutes, there's your reward. You you get to know that we're gonna have the American Association Commissioner Joshua Schwab on to the program next week. Uh, all that's left is just for me to hammer out a date and a time to to get the interview squared away with. But yeah, uh, I'm really excited that he's going to. That he agreed to be on the show. I DM'd him uh, about a week, or a week or so now ago. Then I was like, "Hey, if you have the time, we'd love to have you on the show. Talk about the COVID stuff and obviously other things too. Uh, if you're game for it." And he's like, "Yeah, sure, I'm fine. It would have to be week of the eighth, though. That's when I got availability." I was like, "Yeah, that works perfectly for us. Let's schedule something." So now it's just a matter of following up. But I know he's known about us for a little bit of time now. Uh, it started way back. We start talking way back. I believe when we did the Indie Ball March Madness bit, and he was like, thanks for promoting the league and everything. We're like, oh, it's our pleasure. Thanks for taking notice of it. So uh, we've been talking for a little bit, and I figured, eh, shoot your shot. Why do you got to lose? And as of right now, he's going to be our guest, and so we're excited to have him. Yeah, absolutely. I'm thrilled. I mean, it'll be a real honor to have him on, and uh, it'll be certainly we'll want to pick his brain about a, a thousand different things, but we will try to be mindful of his time. Uh, I certainly am looking forward to that. I think he's got uh, some really great insight into a league that, like I said, I admire because they are fighting a good fight here. I, mean, I, I think it's really easy to get down about this type of stuff, but the American Association has been one of the leagues that is really slogging through this and really saying, really been keeping an upbeat attitude through it, and I really have a lot of respect for that. 100%. And like I said, I'm really pumped to have him on. Yeah, and I guess now we have a, a new winner for biggest name to be on the program now. It keeps going. It keeps changing every week. <laughs> exactly. I mean, after, after this, I'm not sure how much higher up we can hit. I mean, who else do we have left to get on that's higher that's higher name than the commissioner of a league? I don't know, but hey, the ceiling uh, is the stars at this point. Let's just keep going. I mean, Michael Jordan said the best. The ceiling is the roof. So, there you go. I mean, we go from Josh Schwab to then Steve Tasler in two weeks. So we'll be able to ask a lot of questions and get a good lay of the land here going forward for what uh, independent league baseball is going to look like in 2020. So, yep. uh, yeah. any any case, I suppose we should plug stuff now. I mean, it is running a little bit long here. So uh, if you want to find us on Twitter, you can do so at IndieBallPod. Uh, retweet a lot of articles and various other things. So you 
may want to give us a follow there. You can follow us on Instagram at IndieBallJames and at IndieBallReport. Again, we post a lot of transaction news there, post some articles over there, post other things too. It's a good place to stay up to date with all the smaller happenings of independent league baseball. You can find our show notes, the podcast, graphic design projects, articles, as well as videos on IndieBallReport.com. You can find just the videos on the Indie Ball Report podcast YouTube channel, and the podcast is available on most major podcatchers such as TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, Podomatic, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, uh, just like I said, just about anywhere you can find podcasts. Uh, so uh, with that being said, do we have anything else left to add? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, again, just want to thank, as we've done in many weeks past, thank all of our, uh, everyone out there who's been working through this and trying to keep uh, everything going, uh, society moving forward during this difficult time. Um, I'll, I'll highlight uh, once again, our healthcare workers um, and, and certainly those who have been impacted most by the, this virus, anyone who has lost a loved one or anything like that, um, our, our hearts are with them during this difficult time, undoubtedly. And, uh, you know, just the and, and all of our listeners who tune in every week and, uh, you know, we've been getting through this with you. And, I, I, you know, we're starting to see some light at the end of the tunnel there. So uh, keep hanging in there and uh, we'll keep uh, getting you through it. And hopefully sooner or later, we'll be back to talking about some baseball. I echo that 100%. Uh, Thanks to everyone for sticking in there with us. I understand that, you know, a a primarily baseball-based podcast, now talking about actual on-the-field baseball for uh, almost a year now. I mean, we're running close to that, about 10 months. It's kind of hard to deal with. So I appreciate you sticking in there and enjoying the content. We're doing the best we can, getting you the best interviews we can. And hopefully you guys take away something from the episode or at least you find enjoy, enjoyment in it for the 90 minutes or however long we go on these shows. So thank you for that. And uh, with that said, nothing else left to add. You know the drill. Like every time, don't forget to play ball.